I think we live at a magical time in marketing where the blend of what I would call data science uh, and analytics and high creativity around designing categories and brands and then the campaigns and points of view that support those categories and brands has never been greater. You're listening to Real Marketing Real Fast, the only podcast that brings you unfiltered, undaunted, insider information on the latest tools and technologies for online marketers. Prepare to dive deep into marketing myths, breakthrough models, and cutting-edge strategies that will have an immediate impact on the growth of your business. And now, here's your host, marketing expert, Doug Morneau. Well, welcome back. Let's do another episode of Real Marketing Real Fast. Today in studio, I've got joining me fellow Canadian, now expat, living in the Santa Cruz, California area in the U.S., Christopher Lockhead. He is a co-author of a book, uh, HarperCollins, an instant classic called Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. He's also the author of a book called Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different, a book which I had a chance to read earlier this year and really enjoyed the book. Christopher is a three-time public company chief marketing officer and an entrepreneur. In addition, he co-hosts a podcast called Legends and Losers, as well as Lockhead on Marketing, which is now a top-rated uh, podcast on on iTunes. Fast Company calls Christopher a human exclamation point. The Marketing Journal says he's one of the best minds in marketing. And The Economist, I think, hits it, hits it right, on the, right on the head. And he says that he's off-putting to some. At 18, he was thrown out of high school. And with no other options, he started a company. So after 30 years, he's now mostly retired. Um, he's a kick-ass speaker. He's a surfer, a ski bum, and a proud advisor to one life fully lived, living happily ever after in Santa Cruz, California. So I'd like to welcome Christopher to the Real Marketing Real Fast podcast today. Well, hey, Christopher, super excited to have you on the Real Marketing Real Fast podcast. So welcome to the show. Doug, it's great to be here. It's great to hang out with you. You know, and it's always fun to talk to legendary Canadians. There we go. A couple of Canadians, a couple of marketers. Uh, you're a legend with your uh, your podcast or your two podcasts, number one in, uh, in Amazon and, and an author as well. So, hey, congrats. Thank you. It's a little trippy, I'll tell you. It's a... Um, it's a very bizarre thing when uh, you wake up one morning and you get a po you get a note from a friend of yours and says, uh, "Hey, uh, do you know your podcast? This is the number one business podcast on Apple right now." <laughs> I'm like, "What? What? What? You got to be crazy!" But yeah, it, it's a little um, it's a little you know it's a little trippy, but uh, here we are. Well, I'm a fan of your podcast and I shared with you before we got talking, I, I, I've only read one of your books. I've read Niche Down, really, really enjoyed the book and had just listened to your most recent episode about being a first mover category creator with Eddie Yoon and, and loved the whole conversation about data, data flywheel. And I think that's a whole topic that most people have no idea even exists when they're looking at building their business and, and going into the marketplace. Yeah, I think you're right, which is why we wanted to write about it and talk about it. And you know, between us girls, Eddie and I are writing a book together. And that uh, HBR article that sort of inspired that podcast episode was us exposing some of the data science research that we're doing for the book. But here was the insight. You know, as you know, I've been working on category creation, category design for a long time. I think it's probably the most important secret black art in business. And, and as part of that, looking at, okay, 
what attributes do the companies that design and ultimately dominate categories, what are some of their key attributes and try to really understand them? And uh, we talked about it a little bit in my first book, but Eddie and I, and Eddie Yoon, I believe is probably the world's leading authority on category. He's written more for HBR on category than any, any other person on planet earth. So I, I, I think that makes him the man. <laughs> and uh, I am honored to call him a, a dear friend. Anyway, uh, what we decided to do was look at category queen and category king companies and sort of look at key attributes. And there's one that sort of starts to pop out. And we talked about it in my first book, and I think it's even more important now. And that's this thing you mentioned, a data flywheel. And the aha essentially goes like this. Uh, you know, if you look recently, by way of example, Disney enters the streaming category with Disney Plus as an affront on on Netflix. And there's been a lot of debate, you know, are they going to be able to catch Netflix or will they beat Netflix and this and that and the other. And one of the things that is not talked about very much in that discussion is A, first of all, Netflix is the category queen. They designed and now dominate that uh, category. And it's very hard to unseat a category queen or king company with a frontal assault. That's sort of point A. Point B, part of the reason for that legendary category leaders today build a moat and they do it with data. And so if you think about Netflix as a great example, every time you or, you or I consume a piece of content on Netflix, that transaction goes into a big data science database, right? Yep. And it allows them to know a lot more about Doug and it allows them to customize things for Doug, right? And so Joe Pine, the legendary Joe Pine, author of The Experience Economy, says, if it can be digitized, it can be personalized. And so Netflix has more data and information about more people and their consumption habits than anyone. They're almost 20 years into this thing now, or maybe they are 20 years into it. And so, look, is Disney going to be successful? Yes, of course, they're Disney. And if you have kids, you're probably going to subscribe to this thing. I get that. They have amazing content. So, that's important. But what they don't have is a data flywheel that is anything comparable to Netflix. And it's why Amazon is Amazon. It's why Facebook is Facebook. It's why Google is Google. And so the question becomes, okay, it might be obvious for a tech company or a software company, but how does a tech enabled company, if you will, because I think those are the only two choices. You're either a tech company or a tech enabled company today. <laughs> Uh, how do you create a data flywheel uh, that you can monetize uh, in your business? And I think that is an incredibly powerful question. Well, and I, you know, I look at from the venture capital market often, you're looking at these, sometimes these uh, ridiculous valuations of some of the tech startups and people go, well, how can they, how can this work? And they're not making any money. They're giving their product away. It's like what they want is the data. And you said it earlier that you felt that data, we're at a point now where data is, if not more important than money, is pretty close or more valuable. And so these companies that, like you said, can be first movers and acquire this data on their users have, you know, this market intelligence that nobody else can can get access to. Yeah, and look, the, the more Eddie and I have dug into it, and we did some research here, which we can talk about if you like, because you can't talk about data without data. <laughs> <laughs> but Eddie and I have come to a place where we do believe, Doug, data is more valuable than cash. And the reason for that is data is a lot more monetizable than cash. 
so if you look at it today, you know, I don't know exactly what the prime interest rate is, but I, you know, it's 2% or 3%. It's sort of in that range, right? Yep. That's what you get on your money. And of course, there's other ways to monetize money. I'm not an idiot. But if you just take interest as sort of the baseline, Amazon's ability to monetize the data about us is extraordinary. And when you begin to think of your product or service as a data platform, as opposed to a product or a service. And when you believe what I believe, which is data is coming to everything, you name something that's not going to have some kind of data connection to it, some kind of sensor on it. I, I can't think of very many things, but maybe you can. But the big aha around this came with Tesla. Tesla's mindset is they don't sell cars. They sell a platform. In their minds, there's no difference between an iPhone and a Tesla. And so it's highly customizable, per the quote from uh, Pine. And every customization, every sensor, everything is tracked on that. And so they know, just like Netflix knows everything about your consumption habits, yep. Yep. Um, that's what a Tesla really is. And so when you say, okay, wait a minute, now, that Tesla throws off all this data about the driver. That data is monetizable in all kinds of different ways. And so um, the research that we did for the book and, and published in HBR looks at the Fortune uh, fastest growing companies list. We established a criteria for category queen king companies that do have this data mindset, this data flywheel approach. And we, bucket we put them in a bucket and compared them to other comparable fast growers. And then we looked at their value, that is to say market cap or valuation. And the aha is that category dominating companies with a data flywheel are valued 5x more than comparable high growth companies. Well, there's a good reason to pay attention to that. Well, hey, if that doesn't get your attention in your business, I, I, am I allowed to swear on this podcast, Doug? <laughs> you know, Feel free, just let it rip. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck's going to get your attention if you're yeah. if that doesn't. Like, hello. Uh, and I also think, frankly, and there's a lot of discussion now in the investor world, whether it's private investors, venture capitalists, or public investors in the public markets, they're beginning to understand that, A, the company that designs the space is best positioned to dominate it. And in my first book, we did some data science research around that and found out that the category queen company earns 76% of total value created in the category as measured by market cap. And now with this brand new research, we also know that uh, high growth companies that are category queen, category king companies with a data flywheel, when compared to other fast growers, are 5x more valuable. So if those kinds of data points don't sort of elucidate the fact that if you're in business today, the game is, can we design and ultimately dominate a giant category that matters and take two thirds of the economics? That's the game. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. 
That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's not a common conversation I'd have at a, at a business event or, or, or talking to other business owners. You know, everybody's so focused on moving the widgets and not looking, like you said, at the back end and companies, like you said, like, like Amazon and now like Tesla, like in, I live in the Vancouver area and our insurance companies come up with this brilliant idea that they're going to put, um, put tracking devices in vehicles and, and, and monitor your driving habits and, and then we'll reward you uh, with the insurance rates based on, on your habits and I was listening to your podcast and of course like you said Tesla already has that so they don't need to spend you know people don't need to spend two or three thousand dollars outfitting their vehicle and creating all these tracking systems someone like Tesla has got that inherently built in well that's right and the other thing you know it's going on here in the United States there's a state farm ads about this I think there's Geico ads about the, you know there's there's a lot now this is a thing right and and on one hand I get it because if you're a safe driver, why should you pay the same rates that a unsafe driver pays? Yep. Right. You should get a discount. That makes all the sense in the world. At the same time, though, make no mistake. When you do that, what you're doing is you are trading your data for a discount. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, okay, fine. I drive the Tesla to get my cheap insurance and then I drive my sports car that has no tracking because I don't want them to see how I drive. Well, and you're talking to a guy that has a 500 horsepower SUV and a 668 <laughs> horsepower Shelby Cobra. You can go fuck yourself if you want to monitor my driving. And by the way, I've never been in an accident. Yeah. Well, actually, I should say this. I've never been in an accident that I caused ever. There, there you go. And to say I drive aggressively is probably putting it mildly. But yeah, I mean, just, say, just listening to your podcast and following you uh, as an as an author, I think yeah, we probably have similar driving habits. I say to people, more people pray when they're driving with me than pray in church. Yeah, exactly. And I'm somebody who's on a mission to both educate and eradicate people who drive slowly in the left-hand <laughs> lane. When uh, I become president... Yeah. Or prime minister or governor, the first thing that I'm going to do, if you're driving slow in the left-hand lane and there's a person behind you for more than 30 seconds, that is 12 months in jail and a $25,000 fine. <laughs> oh, we could have a whole conversation about that. So yeah, I like your approach. So I want to, I want to shift gears. I mean, because you've got this, you know, this, this you know, 10,000 foot view of, of kind of the marketing world. And you've like, we talked about before, you've been there, done that. So it's not theory. You're not saying, Hey, this is where I think, you know, things are going, or this is what's working. Where do you see the, the, you know, the, the major shifts coming in the marketing world? So for the, our listeners that are, that are, in business they're going okay fine I, I i hear i hear that and you know i'd recommend listeners just go listen to um christopher's um last podcast about the data flywheel and uh, all the contents there but in terms of moving forward where do you see the major major movements for um, for business owners well the first thing i'd say doug is i think it's the most exciting time to be an entrepreneur to be a marketer or to be a business leader of any of any kind i would i would second that for sure yeah I think we, the, the opportunity for creativity, I think we have a technology enabled niche NATO happening where you have these incredible companies in all these micro niches. I mean, you and I were joking before we got started about these ax throwing bars, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, who that's, a, thought? that's a whole new niche right there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, another one of my favorite ones of, 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 you know, the last little while I heard about this restaurant who they looked at a very unique problem that nobody had looked at. 
which is how do I eat sushi on the go? And if you love sushi, and I do, and you ever tried to eat it on the go, it doesn't really work. Like if you're trying to eat it in the car and they have those plastic things yep. and there's, and then there's soy sauce all over your crotch, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. so it's terrible in the car. And even if you're going to go like eat it on a park bench or whatever, it's not, you know, it's just not like, it's not like a sandwich, right? So these, the, the company I'm talking about is called Sushi Rito and they're the world's first sushi burrito. And they solved a problem that nobody ever thought about, which is how do I eat sushi on the go? Well, you wrap it up uh, burrito style and ta-da, the sushi rito is born. And that's a whole new category. And they distinguish themselves from every other sushi restaurant because they're not having the conversation that most marketers have, which is our sushi is better than their sushi. <laughs> that's right. Right? Yeah. yeah. They're having a conversation that says our sushi's different than their sushi. And now you have a choice between regular sushi and the sushi Rito. And so the, the first thing I'd say is we're at a point in time where the combination of just pure creativity, human creativity, coupled with the fact that it's never been more cost effective to start a company, uh, the technology enables things that are have never been possible before, even for the smallest of entrepreneurs with the smallest amounts of money, all the way up to people who are trying to build, you know, the next Google or Facebook. And so the first thing is that just the general environment that we're in, I think, is highly conducive to entrepreneurship if you're willing to go for it, particularly because of the technology. The second thing I'd say is, you know, there's always been this debate in marketing about, well, you know, the art and the science and, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? Well, I think we're at a point in time where the science part of marketing has never been more precise, has never been more powerful. We can, we can post an ad on, on the internet and spend a very small amount of money and see if people respond. And we can do this thing called A-B testing. And so we can, in a very, we can have an idea, deploy that idea, see what kind of response we get and try a bunch of different things, track those things and the things that get traction we invest in and the things that don't we don't and and our ability to do that for a very small amount of money is incredible so i think the data side is powerful we talked about the data flywheel i so i think the cmo of the future is a data maniac and is 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 it loves analytics and i think a lot of people are over focusing on it and so i think we got to do all that stuff and we also have to be strategic. We have to be creative. And what headhunters tell me, Doug, is the number one skill that CEOs are looking for in CMOs is the ability to uh, create and design categories. And so I think the other big aha here is when most people say marketing, there is an undeclared, undiscussed assumption that what they mean is we are going to enter an existing market category. And we are going to, and I say this word very much on purpose, compete. And the basis we're going to compete on is better, faster, cheaper, bigger, smaller, et cetera. But com competition, by definition, is a comparison game. And compared to existing products and services in the market category that we are now going to compete in. Well, the big aha is that's a fool's game. The legends never compete. Legendary entrepreneurs, legendary creators, legendary marketers of any kind, whether you want to talk about Pablo Picasso or Sarah Blakely at Spanx, they don't do that. They proactively position themselves 
category design fundamentally is about radical differentiation and legends want to be considered the first to be pioneers in a new area and want everything that comes after them to be compared to them. They're the standard. And so I I think we live at a magical time in marketing where the blend of what I would call data science uh, and analytics and high creativity around designing categories and brands and then the campaigns and points of view that support those categories and brands has never been greater. And as a as a marketer, as a former CMO myself, I love living at this intersection of strategic creativity that you can't focus group and deep data analytics and trying to find that magical balance between the two. Well, like you said, it's, it's, you know, it's faster and less expensive than ever, you know, in the history of the world to go out there and test an idea, a concept, uh, you know, and to get access to the data. And I don't hear lots of people, you know, talking about getting access to third party data. I'm using a tool now that lets me test subject lines. And when I when I'll write, you know, six, eight, 10 subject lines, it'll compare it to, um, you know, a million pieces of known data. And it'll give me some feedback on on how to reword that. So it's it's looking at historical data and it's not my data, but somebody else has created that database. And those tools are available for entrepreneurs to use instead of sitting, scratching your head going, so Christopher, what do you think? What do you think our subject line should be? Well, so what you and I think is two people and there's going, you know, here we, we've got a million pieces of data that say that, you know, you should change this word or change that word and have a higher output. Yeah, that's right. And so I think it's I think it's just very exciting because on one hand, we can be analytical, we can be very um, sort of market aware to your point. You can test these things and that that gives you a sense of where the market category is now. And that's very valuable and important. That's critical for lead generation and pipeline building and community building and all the good shit. And the other seminal question is, well, Who's creating that demand? What happens to get somebody to Google something, right? Yep. And so I think there's been a massive over-focus on how do we capture demand? And I'm not suggesting that a focus on capturing demand is a dumb idea. It's a smart idea. However, it's the, it's the person who's able to create the demand. And so this magical intersection of creativity and strategy around how do I design a category with a provocative, engaging point of view to educate the world, to think about things in a massively different way so that I'm the company and or the person setting the agenda in the space that I care about. And at the same time, how do I meet the market where it is? And then uh, using a kind of data analytical approach and then pull them forward on the category uh, point of view agenda that I have. I, that, that to me is a fascinating discussion. And as a marketer, I love the sort of the engaging both sides of the brain deeply. Well, so how do, you know, how do entrepreneurs that have got an existing business make that, make that shift or start to go in that direction? Because you're not obviously not going to say, hey, I can't, I can't be the category leader. There's already somebody there, so I'm competing. So I guess there's two issues is, you know, what changes do you need to, to, to make to, to drive that direction? And then the second one is, you know, are you, are you looking at your competition Fairly. Like I, I had heard a guy speak, his name is uh, Rasmussen Ankerson, and he had a book called Hungry in Paradise. And he talked about Lego and Lego being the category killer in building blocks. And year after year after year after year, they made money and they were the top 
top level, their new CMO came in and said, you know, we're changing our, our view of our competition. We're no longer competing with big blocks. Our competition now is Apple. So, you know, uh, the kids' attention now is not just going to be in the toy box. They want electronic devices. So how are we going to compete? So they go off and they they create a tool where the kids can take a picture of their what they've built and they can upload it to a game and now they can be interactive. So how do companies make that shift and look at, you know, um, where the marketplace should be going? So this is all about radical differentiation and it's all about the distinction between comparison and choice. The fool's trap is the comparison trap. And the biggest fool of all probably is Pepsi. Because when they run these idiot ads with Steve Carroll on them, talking about Pepsi comparing it to Coke. If I say to you, hey, Pepsi tastes better than Coke. Pepsi's more refreshing than Coke. Uh, Pepsi's cheaper than Coke. Pepsi's better than Coke. Pepsi's more interesting than Coke. <laughs> What's in your mind? Coke. <laughs> and these morons have been doing this for fucking decades. Yeah. Their entire marketing budget is actually an add-on to Coke's marketing budget because the entire conversation they have with the category is in the context of Coke. The other example I love of this is if you watch any ad on TV for a local car dealership, you see moron marketing in action. Come on down this weekend. We will not be undersold. We have the, we have the more GM trucks. We got red ones and blue ones. And, and we got the best service and the best price. Come on down this weekend. You go, don't take it from me. The stupidest phrase in the history of marketing. <laughs> don't take it from me as here are our customers. And, and the whole thing is a comparison shopping argument as opposed to evangelizing the unique thing about their dealer. There yeah. is nothing unique. So when there's nothing unique, you have a stupid conversation that says, compare us on price and availability and service, right? Although and you can create something unique. Like I, I have a buddy of mine who is managing a big GM dealership and I went over using my Rotary Club and I went over and had a tour of their plant and looked at their, you know, kind of what they're doing. And he talked about sales numbers and I said, hey, can we take a walk through your mechanical shop? He walked through and he said, see that mechanic over there? I said, yeah. He said, he's the number one Cadillac uh, mechanic in Canada. I said, that's cool. I said, are you, are you using him as your main marketing focus? He went, why? I said, well, if I'm going to buy a Cadillac, I'd like to have it serviced by the smartest guy in Canada. So that's your, that's your marketing piece, not the fact that you sell Cadillacs, the fact that you've got the smartest guy in the country working here. And, I, and if I want to buy your Cadillac, I want to have it serviced by the smartest guy in Canada. I would agree with you. That's an absolute differentiator, but it's probably not enough. And so all I'm arguing is that differentiating on price, availability and service uh, and location, those are, tend to be the things that car dealers uh, compete on, Sure, is an invitation to be compared. So then and how Steve do you deal Jobs. with that? So how do you do that if you're, if you're co or your Pepsi or your car dealership? So in those examples, you know, what, what do you do to, to move the dial and, and stop saying, Hey, we're better than Coke. Take the Pepsi challenge. Yeah. So you got to get three things, right? We call it the mad prosecuting the magic triangle product company and category. 
And so you do have to have a differentiated product. You, you can't put whipped cream on dog shit. There's got to be something about what you do that's unique. So you got to find that thing and you got to connect that thing to something, an opportunity or a problem that matters to a customer. And then you've got to be able to execute on it. So I'll give you a simple example. Uh, recently, I had a conversation on the Lean Startup podcast with Chris Guest, who's an awesome guy. And he was talking to me about uh, a category uh, queen company that he loves, Dyson. Yep. And they're an incredible example. You know, I'm sitting here in my studio. Uh, I have a Dyson fan. Well, they reimagined the fan because there's no fan in the fan. Yeah, okay, I know. Okay, and by the way, it doesn't just blow cold air; it blows hot air. Yeah. So they reimagined it from a product point of view, and then from a category point of view, they said it's not a fan; it's a it's a fanless fan. They did the same thing with um, with vacuum cleaners. They thought about a vacuum cleaner in the context of what's the problem the vacuum cleaner is trying to solve. And they had this aha that said, well, on one hand, you know, the problem is clean the floor, right? Yeah. But there's a problem with how we're currently solving the problem. And that is the vacuum cleaner has a bag and the bag is disgusting and there's all this crap that gets blown into the air as a result of the design of the the vacuum and the existence of the bag so they create a new category of vacuum cleaner a niche down a niche with inside this broader category they call the bagless vacuum cleaner so they get product company and category right and today if you're going to buy a high-end vacuum cleaner there's a very good chance you're buying a bagless vacuum cleaner. And so the answer to your question is start off in a couple places. Number one, what makes us radically different? And number two, what problem or opportunity do we see that no one else sees? And once you connect those two things, you then build this thing called a point of view, which is you go to the world and in the example of Dyson, you know, to quote the big Lebowski, they have a conversation about bags in vacuums and they say, this aggression will not stand, man. And they make the existence of the bag the enemy. So they're not competing with a competitor in a traditional sense. They're competing with the old category design of what people think a vacuum cleaner is. And when they evangelize via a point of view that there's a new category, a niche of vacuum cleaner that is bagless, they educate the market as to the value of that and they literally change what customers value by redesigning the agenda, the spec, the priorities that people look for when going to uh, purchase a vacuum. And so my point is, start off with where you think you can be radically different and connect that radically different to a problem that you care about. And evangelize the shit out of that. Your legends educate the customer to think in new and different ways. And that's how agendas get set. And that's this thing called a point of view. So you, you figure out what makes you radically different. You figure out a unique and interesting way to look at a problem. And then how you tie it all together is you create a radical point of view about that. And then you as the entrepreneur, you as the CEO, CMO, executive team, go out to the world and you begin to evangelize the problem and therefore the solution in a unique way. And when you're able to do that and get it to tip at scale, bam, 
that's how you get Airbnb. Or on a smaller business basis, that's how you get, you know, seven or eight location sushi rito. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, what you didn't mention was 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 price. Because obviously the Dyson, we've got a couple of them. Um, they're they're more expensive. But they, then they went to the, so if they got rid of the bag first, then the second thing they went after was we're not going to have plugs. We're going cordless. That's right. And so, so again, there was, there, there was number two. And now everybody's playing me too and playing catch up. So, you know. And the mistake that most people make is they think Dyson is competing on product innovation. Now they are. They're a legendary product company. Absolutely legendary. All time. But they're doing something that most people don't realize they're doing. And that's why I call it a secret black art. They are not marketing in any traditional sense of the word. They are creating the market. They're establishing the agenda. So they're not just building features and capabilities. They're also doing meaningful market education. And when you do that and you evangelize the difference between a, a cordless product and, and a corded product, people get it. And here's the, here's the thing. We live at a time, Doug, where most entrepreneurs, most marketers truly think like, like they believe in the availability of air. They believe the best product wins. And I'm here to tell you, products do not speak for themselves. And my favorite example of this all time, I would argue that the two greatest inventions and or discoveries, depending on how you want to think about them, are fire and the wheel. Do you know how long after the invention of the wheel it took for people to use the wheel for transportation? Nope. 300 years. <laughs> wow. The wheel was originally invented for pottery and it spun the other way and people sat with it in between their legs and they, they made shit with it yep. and they still do. And then about 300 years in, Doug, a couple of legendary entrepreneurs got a bottle of Jack Daniels and a big bag of weed. And they started to think about this. And somebody said, Hey man, what if we tilted this thing and used it for transportation? That's funny. And so here's my argument. If you believe what I believe, which is the wheel is probably the most important product ever created. And that legendary product couldn't speak for itself. The ultimate use case for that product did not reveal itself for 300 years. I don't care how legendary your product or service is. If you don't tell people how to think about it, they're not going to get it. Products don't speak for themselves. One of my favorite expressions is position yourself or be positioned. If you ask people who is the greatest boxer of all time, everybody says the same thing. And the reason they all say Muhammad Ali is because Muhammad told us that. <laughs> he said, yeah. Thousands of yeah. times. Yeah. I am the greatest, yeah. right? Yeah. He was positioning himself. Well, you know, and another product that uh, that, I, that I thought was quite interesting, because a lot of people talk about being a better product and, and you're saying, you know, the better product, you know, I don't think the better product wins always either. If you look at the example of this author talking about Nokia versus Apple, Nokia had a phone you could drop, had good battery life, you could run over it with your car. And Nokia's position was, well, no one's going to buy an iPhone because it costs three times as much if you drop it or breaks and the battery life sucks. Well, you know, we know what happened to Nokia. So they had a better product and Apple came and ate their lunch because they created a different category. That's absolutely right. They changed the definition of what a, at the time we called a mobile phone. And, and the truth is 
pay, pay close attention to what things are called. In the beginning, they were called wireless phones. Often new categories are described by what they're not, bagless vacuum. And then what they are becomes clear. So the, the, one of these that I love, of course, is, is Henry Ford. In the beginning, his category is called horseless carriage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right? Because you got to meet the category where it is. Yep. Engage them with a provocative, engaging point of view. What do you mean horseless, right? And then take them from where they are to where they where you want them to be. And so if he starts off and says automobile, everybody says, what are you talking about? I don't even know what the fuck word you just said, right? So pay close attention to what things are called. And often in the beginning, new categories are described by what they're not. And then they morph over time. So we go from wireless phone to mobile phone. And today we have smartphone. And my guess, I could be wrong, but my guess is five to 10 years from now, the word phone will be gone because as we know, that thing that we carry around today is actually the greatest supercomputer ever. Yeah, yeah and, that's and right. There's probably a new name because phone is like one, one millionth of the functionality of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the, probably the simplest, uh, simplest application on the phone. That's right. You know, you, you can record and edit a podcast on your phone. Well, I just, we're far away from a phone. Yeah, I heard Kevin Harrington speak at a couple events I was uh, working at, and uh, he had said, you know, uh, for those of you who are afraid to create video because you don't have all the right equipment, he goes, you have more more technology in your pocket in your iPhone now than I had when I started creating infomercials. So there's no excuse. There's there's more technology in your pocket now than there was 10 years ago on the freaking space shuttle. Yeah, I remember going to NASA, taking the kids. We had been in a cruise uh, uh, out of Galveston, Texas, and we were down there when we, we were coming back. And, you know, having that conversation about, hey, the, you know, your scientific calculator had more computing power than they sent the first uh, first man up on the moon. Yeah, and, and you know, entrepreneur Tom Siebel, he was on my podcast a little while ago, and he's written this great new book called Digital Transformation. And, you know, he makes the statement that the next 10 years – are going to blow away the last 10 years in terms of uh, innovation. And if you start to go through the list of truly breakthrough innovations that are going on right now, there's never been a list like it in human history. You know, whether you want to talk about drones or 3D printing or genomics or, you know, of course, the cloud itself continues to have a, a profound uh, impact, you know, the fact that a, a, a little girl with a 3D printed hand threw out the first pitch at a San Francisco Giants game last year. And, you know, like, what? What are you what are we even talking about? You know, we're now using uh, sensors and big data science to fight wildfires and stop human trafficking. And I mean, there's just an extraordinary breakthrough that's that's going across multiple industries with with exponential technologies. Right. And and fundamentally that's what opens up the opportunity for all of us as entrepreneurs and marketers. So I don't know if you're a Tim Ferriss fan or not. I, you know what? I really like him and I respect and admire him for some reason. I, I never quite get into his podcast and I, I'm not quite sure why I try, but there's, I, I don't quite get all the way there. I've met him. He's good buddies with my buddy, Mike Maple. So anyway, I do love him, but for whatever reason, I don't consume very much of him. 
Yeah, I've read some of his books. I don't listen to a lot of his podcasts, but I, I definitely uh, like like some of his writing. And and I, I you know I think his whole radical idea of a four hour work week and that that was his that was his you know way to compete with the business books. But there's a question that he uh, that he had in his book, and I'm going to ask the question to you. So, what's some of the bad advice? that you hear. So when you're, you know, if you're out speaking, cause I know you do lots of, lots of, you know, kind of high level stuff. What's the, what's the conversation you hear in the background that just makes you want to go over and slap someone? No. Oh, how long do you have? <laughs> pick, pick, pick one, pick the number, pick the, your biggest as a, as a, as a marketing guru. And what's, what's the one thing that you just, you know, the worst. So I think we've been touching on, on a couple of them. The first one is this, this belief, the best product wins. And if you listen to entrepreneurs, you listen to the Google founders, they'll tell you it was the algorithm that did it. And look, I am in no way shitting on legendary products. We need breakthrough products, but a product cannot speak for itself. And so this notion that the best product wins and that what we need, you know, we heard this thing in Silicon Valley for a while now, we need product CEOs. And we do, but that's that's just part of it. So that's one. Here's another one that makes me crazy and it's been a big idea over the last 10 or 15 years. Product market fit. I think product market fit is one of the most dangerous ideas in the history of business. And here's why. It tricks entrepreneurs, creators, inventors, and marketers into thinking what there is to do is to invent something and fit it into a market. When in point of fact, that's not what any legend did. All the legends, the reason they're legends, the reason we respect them, the, re the reason they created, in, in some cases, uh, many billions of dollars of value. And in the case of companies like Amazon, Apple, and Google, and Microsoft, these companies are all flirting with a trillion dollars in value is because they were unique. They were distinct. They broke and took new ground. And you can't, if you, if, if product market fit, makes people think that you're trying to fit into a market legends create the market and in most cases breakthrough innovations focus group very poorly look we just saw this with the launch of the cyber truck yeah the number of people that laughed is just gigantic is it going to be successful i don't know but the thing that pissed me off about all the criticism is where are all the people saying you know what congratulations guys yeah you're trying you are trying to break and take new ground. When was the last time somebody tried to reimagine the truck? It's been fucking decades. So look, do I like the way it looks? Do I think it's going to work? Do, I, I don't know. Do I want one? No, but I applaud them. I take my hat off them because they're doing what legends do, which is break and take new ground. And if you focus group the cyber truck, probably more people don't like it than do like it. And so this idea of product market fit can lead to people going down a rat hole that says, okay, we'll build a prototype of our new carbodingulator. We'll focus group it and show it to a bunch of people. If the dogs eat the food, we have a winner. And if they don't, we have a loser. And they think that it's about getting people to like a product. And they forget this giant step that the legends taught the world how to think about a problem or an opportunity in a completely new way. And when they do that, then they're open to a whole new kind of solution. And the big aha around this, Doug, is that the empires of the future do not fit into the categories and paradigms of the past. And so product market fit 
by definition, is backward looking, not forward looking. Well, I love that example because, you know, I, I, I love reading and, and, and following a lot of, you know, what Elon Musk has done. And so I look at things like, you know, PayPal today and, you know, how he envisioned moving currency electronically. You know, it wasn't 300 years ago like the wheel, but it was a long time ago. And like you said, with the electric car, we're, we're looking at buying a hundred percent electric car and people are going, well, you know, the batteries die and this happens and that happens like, well, somebody needs to, somebody needs to go first. So good for them for making an effort. And maybe it does, uh, you know, there's not the, the environmental impact that they want because of the cost or the, the exposure mining lithium. But if you don't take steps towards that, you're never going to solve that problem. They're having a whack at it. Yeah. Yeah. And like to your point, good, good for them. And I look at product innovation. The thing that always makes me laugh is when I get, I get a shipment from Amazon or somebody I've ordered online is I laugh at those plastic bags full of air that come in the boxes. So could you imagine trying to do a category fit for, Hey, let's, let's, let's see if the market wants to buy plastic bags full of air for shipping containers. Exactly. And somebody's making millions of dollars filling plastic full of air so that our stuff doesn't bounce around in the boxes we're shipping it. And the examples are everywhere. You know, another one of my all-time favorite examples is Picasso, right? In the beginning, he starts off painting landscapes and pretty ladies and whatever. And it's only when he starts using bright colors and boxes and taking the boob and stuck sticking it where the ear should be and doing all this, you know, very radical stuff does his career start to change? And in the beginning, people look at it and they go, what is this? This is, this is garbage. This looks like a piece of crap. This looks like the work of a drunken child. <laughs> and he says, no, that's where you're wrong. This is a new category of art called cubism. And if you Google him and you read his Wikipedia page, I think it's the second sentence that says he's the founder or the father of cubism. And so here's the aha the category makes the brand. Everyone goes, oh, Picasso's the biggest brand in art. Yeah, okay. Why? Because he was the pioneer of cubism. And when cubism became hot, he became hot. And the reason we know the Picasso brand, quote unquote, is because of cubism. And so legends break or take new ground. They, they do not compare themselves to the past. They create the future and they educate the world about how they see that future. And when enough people agree with them, a whole new category tips and ta-da, you become the most famous painter in the world. You, you build Google, you build Airbnb, like my friend uh, Eric Yuan at Zoom, you create a whole new paradigm of communication and $20 billion in value in roughly, I think it's eight years. Wow, that's cool. Yep, I'm not, not a day goes by when I'm not on a Zoom call with somebody. Yeah, they changed the whole game. Yeah, they've stopped yeah, traveling. The plane and yeah, uh, I've, I've seen a report recently, Doug, that says forty percent of American knowledge workers now telecommute at least part of the time. You know, I don't know about you. Somebody invites me to an in-person meeting. I'm like, what are you talking about an in-person meeting? <laughs> I mean, there has to be a really good reason. Yeah. And I look, yeah. I love hanging out with people and uh, I get it. And sometimes what there is to do is sit down and be in a room and, you know, absolutely. And we can have people from all around the world on a call right now and have an incredibly productive meeting. I have, I have collaborated with people and done meaningful work with people that I've never met in person. Yeah, that's the same with me. You yeah. know, you were talking about my podcast producer, Jamie J. Yeah. 
He's been producing my podcast for two years. We've never met in person ever. I talk to him twice a week on Zoom. Yeah. No, I get that. And, and you know, and there's a, most of my clients I've never met. So they're someplace in the US, someplace in Europe. We can have a conversation. And and actually, to be perfectly honest, I like, like you, I like meeting people and, 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 and breaking bread and having some wine and having good dinner or whatever. But I just feel a lot more productive. You know, meetings, face-to-face meetings take a lot of time. And so people go, what do you mean you never met your client? I said, well, all I need to do is, you know, serve them, provide what they need and make sure that they've got my rate wiring information so they can send money. So I don't need to meet face to face. Yeah. And when you do, it's super high impact, super valuable to your point. You go out, maybe you have a nice dinner. Um, You know, I recently met some folks that I've been working with for a while that I'd never met in person. And the other thing that's interesting about the technology today is it's not uncomfortable when you meet them in person. You already know them. There's that one moment where you're like, oh, he's a little taller, a little shorter, a little this, a little that than than I might have expected. And so there's that little moment and then poof, it's gone because the reality is if you've been doing meaningful work using the technology, you're already in a deep, meaningful uh, relationship. And, and so, bam, it's, it's as though you've known each other for, uh, you know, years because of the technology. Yeah, that's the other good thing about Zoom. I mean, because it's a video call, you get away from people um, and their social media profile pictures of them when they were 25 and a football star. And now they're (laughs) 55 and they look a bit different. You meet them, you're going like, you look a lot different than your profile picture. So (laughs) I I will tell you, my profile picture is is recent. No, (laughs) So that's how shitty I actually look. (laughs) No, it wasn't a comment on your profile. So so I want to um, I want to wrap up and ask you two more questions and then I'll let you go back to um, helping people solve the marketing problems. Number one is who's one guest you think I absolutely have to have on my podcast? Oh, that's a great question. You know, maybe it's because her book's right in front of me. Lee Hartley Carter. She wrote this great book called Persuasion. And she was on my podcast. The book's come out uh, this year. And the reason she popped to my mind, I think one of the most unthought about, unworked on areas of marketing is language. And they are, uh, I forget exactly what they call themselves, but they might call themselves a strategic language firm. And uh, they spend a lot of time thinking about words and the impact they have. And I have long believed, Doug, that a demarcation point in language creates a demarcation point in thinking, which creates a demarcation point in action, usage, purchasing, and consumption. And her firm specializes exclusively in that. And her book, Persuasion, is all about that. They work with political campaigns. They work with major brands. And so one of the conversations I think is lacking in marketing and business is a conversation about how we use language to shape categories and thinking. You know, when I say to you, oh, uh, you know, in our town, we have too many um, winos and bums. That makes you think one thing. And when I say to you, oh, in our town, we have too many homeless people, that makes you think a a whole other thing. It's very hard to be against a law called the Patriot Act. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, It's very hard to be against a law called the Clean Air Act. There's a reason, there's a strategic reason that people buy pre-owned vehicles as opposed to used cars. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Right. And so if you start to play with language and pay attention, this is why I think category design and points of view are so important because it frames language 
frames thinking. And I think Lee is an incredibly smart gal. I think her book is very powerful. And I think those of us entrepreneurs, those of us marketers need to think a lot more strategically about language. You know, the reason uh, Mark Benioff was able to almost single-handedly create the cloud was he reimagined the language around the current category. And what I mean specifically is he named what SAP does as on-premise software. And it was the creation of on-premise, which was functionally and technically correct. And then he imbued on-premise with negative meaning that sets up a conversation about the cloud. That's a strategic choice of language. And so I think most of us in business are sloppy with language. And um, anyway, that, that's one big idea I have for you. And, and she's a great gal and I'm happy to make an introduction if you like. That would be absolutely amazing. Now, the most important question of the whole day is how do you want people to reach out and connect with you? So it goes without saying that they should subscribe to your podcast on iTunes, but how do you want them to connect with you deeper? Um, however they want, you know, of course, most people who interact with my stuff, I never get to communicate with or, or meet or anything like that. And that's cool. So if you want to read the books and listen to the podcasts, that's fantastic. And if you want to reach out more, I'm at lockhead.com, two H's, and you can email blackhole at lockhead.com and that'll get to me. And I, you know, of course I'm on social media and LinkedIn and all that good stuff. If you want to go to those places. And what I would tell you is I bust my nuts to respond to everybody. I, I can't get to everybody anymore. You know, we sort of hit, hit a point where responding to everybody is really hard, but we work hard at it myself and my assistant candy, who I lovingly refer to as candy dandy. She's one of my absolute favorite people on the planet. You know, we try super hard to respond to everybody, every tweet, every email, every LinkedIn and all that. Uh, I try to get to as many of them as possible personally. And so, yeah, lockhead.com and then all the other sort of ways to, to touch base, hang off there or just email blackhole at lockhead.com and, and I'll do my best. That's really cool. Now, did you pick, and I just, uh, did you choose the, uh, the language black hole, uh, as a deterrent for people to not email you, or is that just, a- <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little for sure. But, uh, my, my wife, Carrie actually came up with the idea and it's, 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 it's partially on that, but it's, uh, mostly on the fact that, you know, when, when you and I send an email to a person or a company for the first time, you know, it just enters a black hole and sure. we're, we're very used to not getting a response. Yeah, right? I, I like that. I'm, I'm thinking, hey, you know, I, I might I might uh, take creative license and uh, and add an email address. Some people by all go. means. So mostly it was meant to be funny. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, yes. Well, fuck. It's in the black yeah. hole yeah. now. Who knows? Yeah, you that's know? what I was thinking. That's, that's brilliant. <laughs> but yeah, that's my, that's my incredible, incredible gal, uh, Carrie. She's amazing. And she's got a very quick and fun sense of humor. Yeah, that's great. Well, hey, thanks. Thanks so much. Great to great to chat. Great to uh, actually talk to you and uh, post to me just listening to you. I, so I still had a chance to listen to you, but there was a little bit of interaction back and forth. So I appreciate you taking time and being so generous. Doug, thank you. It really is my pleasure and bless you. 
Thank you. So there you go, listeners. There's another episode of Real Marketing Real Fast. And we had a Canadian and U.S. legend on the podcast today, Christopher Lockhead, and he shared a ton of value. Hope you got some good notes. We'll make sure the show notes are transcribed. I'd highly recommend subscribing to either of his podcasts and picking up his book. Uh, really enjoyed uh, following Christopher for uh, for a while. He was introduced to me by, uh, as he mentioned, his uh, producer, Jamie J. Uh, love what he's doing. Look forward to your feedback and comments uh, on the blog once it's published. So thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to serving you on our next episode. That's all for this episode of Real Marketing Real Fast. Now it's time to take your marketing to the next level by visiting DougMorneau.com and downloading our advanced marketing white papers as well as exclusive resources based on today's episode. That's DougMorneau.com. Until next time, we look forward to serving you right here on Real Marketing Real Fast.